Welcome to the April edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host this morning. This morning our guest is Rachel Austin. She's an astronomer who uh, works at the University of Maryland now. And she's here using the Green Bank Telescope to look at an unusual group of stars called M dwarfs. We'll find out from her more about these stars and why they're prone to violent flares. We'll also learn how M stars compare with our sun. Rachel, welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Rachel's with us uh, using the Green Bank Telescope. And we learned that she's doing something quite a bit different from what other astronomers do when they come to use the telescope. So I definitely wanted to yes, have indeed. her on the show. So you could learn about it out there in Radio Land. But first, before we talk about what you're doing with the GBT, why don't you tell the folks out there who you are, maybe where you went to school, and where you work now. Okay. So starting back almost from the very beginning, maybe not quite the very beginning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm originally from uh, from New England. I grew up in Massachusetts. Spent most of my early years there. I went to college at a small school in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, when I was trying to decide where I wanted to go to grad school, I wanted to get off the East Coast, so I went to Colorado. I spent six years in Boulder, Colorado, which was wonderful, and I probably spent more time there than I really probably could have finished earlier, but I was having such a nice time living in Boulder that stretched it out a little bit. After that, I came back east to Charlottesville, um, where I was working at NRAO's Charlottesville site. Spent three years there, and now, just this past fall, I've moved up to the University of Maryland. And uh, and I also, I have a research fellowship at the University of Maryland, and I'm also affiliated with NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, which is also near the university. How did you get interested in astronomy? Were you interested in astronomy right from the very beginning? No. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's probably something unusual. Most of the astronomers that I I know were the little kid, the eight-year-olds who knew the planets in order and, you know, could go out in the night sky and pick out constellations and and whatnot, and that was not me. <laughs> I remember, remember my dad taking my older brother and I out when we were young to look through the telescope, and I, you know, I, I couldn't see what he was pointing at in the sky. I didn't see any any of the constellation patterns, and I didn't understand why the telescope, everything was upside down, <laughs> right? And it was cold and it was dark, and so I just wasn't really that interested as a kid. So how how did I get into this business? Um, in high school, I kind of realized that I like science and just kind of gravitated towards physics. And then when I went to college, I knew that I wanted to do research. And it turns out that the first research job I got was doing astronomy research. Was this as an undergraduate? Yeah, as an undergraduate. Okay. And kind of curiously enough, it, the first research project that I did was studying stars, studying the same general kinds of stars that I'm still studying. I can blame can blame the uh, person I worked for for getting me involved in this. Yeah, so. And here you are. And here I am. <laughs> All right, so you are here visiting us in Green Bank to use the Green Bank Telescope to look at stars, and that's just not something that the Green Bank Telescope does very often. <laughs> look at stars while they're actually shining in the sky. You know, they might look at stars after they've blown up or something like this. Tell us a little bit about about that, and then we'll back up and talk about why it is that 
that certain stars anyway can be seen with radio telescopes? Sure. What I'm what I'm doing is using the the Green Bank Telescope and um, and another big telescope, the Arecibo Observatory down in Puerto Rico, to to study a phenomenon called um, flares. I'm studying stellar flares. Flares are kind of as a whole, uh, just as a kind of a broad category or phenomenon are these huge releases of energy that occur on the surface of the star and they produce radiation, um, they produce radio waves, they produce radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum, optical, x-ray, even gamma-ray radiation. And so what I'm trying to do is use some of the instruments on the GBT, which were not developed for this use, but I, but actually can be used to, to study this particular kind of flare in exquisite detail. So I'm trying to essentially do, do physics, do detailed physics of, of these events. Now, one of the reasons, well, there's a couple reasons why these events are, are really interesting. We think that they might be similar to things that we see on the sun only much more energetic than anything the sun could produce, which is probably a good thing because we don't we wouldn't want the sun to be producing flares of the same magnitude that these the flares on these stars are. Um, otherwise, we probably wouldn't be here. But what that what that allows us to do is use a lot of the um, the detailed information that we know about what happens on these flares on the sun and apply that to these stars where. Okay. Um, where you lose a lot of information, like we don't, we can't actually see the star. It's just a point of light, and so we're making a lot of inferences about about the data that we collect and how that relates to what's happening on a very small patch of the star. Since since you're 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 looking out way farther at uh, a different group of stars, you're right. I mean, you do need to use what you know about the sun to try to make sense of what you're doing. And so if we could um, tell the listeners out there a little bit about the sun and flares on the sun, maybe what the, how the sun is built so that we know why these flares occur and what they are, and then we'll get back to your stars and see what's different about them. Sure, sure. So flares on the sun, we know from being able to actually see them happen in... Um, in exquisite detail, you can just watch a part of the sun and watch a flare happen. It's it's all tied up in magnetic fields and rearranging of magnetic fields and energy getting released and uh, a whole just a whole slew of different kinds of uh, things that go off when that there's there's energy that can uh, can heat up gas, it can move it around, and so you just see this wonderful rich. Uh, array of of results that happen from this just just simple moving around of, of a magnetic field. So the sun has a magnetic field. Yes. I, I think probably most of the listeners are familiar with sunspots. Mm-hmm. Um, how are the sunspots related to magnetic fields? And, and I know that sunspots and flares can have something to do with each other. Yeah. In fact, sunspots are um, what you see when you look at the sun in visible light and a sunspot is kind of a a region where you're actually seeing deeper into the the sun's atmosphere because there's very strong magnetic fields poking out of the sun's surface at that point and 
there is a very direct relationship between sunspots and solar flares. We know that flares happen in these regions where intense magnetic fields are poking out of the surface. And in fact, solar physicists can look at how this, how a sunspot is arranged and what kind of shape it has and how that changes um, as the sunspot moves. And they can actually predict in some sense when a flare is going to happen hmm. by looking at that rearrangement of the magnetic fields. Now, we can't do anything like that on stars, but right. uh, but that kind of tells you about what the, the connection between these magnetic fields. So flares, do they do they look like they like their name sounds? Or do they actually involve material flaring up or jumping off the surface of the sun? What is a yeah? They do. Like? They do. Um, so if you look at if you look at the surface of the sun when one of these flares happens, you'll see matter getting expelled, ejected from the surface of the sun. Uh, if you looked at, at how the intensity of the sun is changing, you'll see an increase momentarily as there's more radiation being produced during the flare. And um, sometimes if a flare happens on the sun and it's in the right orientation, we can actually experience that flare here at Earth when the matter that comes from the sun travels that distance between the Earth and the Sun and, and can hit hit the Earth. And uh, we had a couple of events like that a few years ago. So this material blasts off the Sun, keeps on going through space, and eventually we collide with it or it collides with us here on Earth. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. So And it can have very significant consequences for, say, satellites or mm -hmm. astronauts. It's not good for them, I would imagine. Not good for astronauts, <laughs> no. So, you know, so... There's there's a reason why your average average person might want to know about might want to know about solar flares and in fact there's a whole scientific community that studies what's called space weather and that's that's really just you know watching the sun and trying to figure out what what it's doing the more satellites that we have up there for our cell phones and our XM satellite radio right. and <laughs> and everything the more more vulnerable we are to to what happens on the sun. Now so. here on the surface of the earth does the earth's atmosphere in some way protect us more than say a satellite that's out there in space? Or? Yes, it does. Fortunately. That's good. Cuz otherwise then we'd be have to be worried like the astronauts are. Yes. When they're out there. Yes. What can a, what can the particles in a solar flare do to an astronaut? Is it like being hit by radiation? Yeah, it, it would be like getting, you know, a thousand x-rays in a, in a half an hour, you know, in a very short period of time. So that's damaging to astronauts. That's also damaging to satellites. If a, a satellite gets exposed to a huge blast of radiation, it can fry the satellite. So And they're hard to fix because they they're are. up there in space. You yep. can't get up there too easily. <laughs> okay, so... I love flares. I, in fact, I love to watch them. We have a small telescope here that has a filter on it that just lets the light in from hydrogen so that, and, and lets very little of that through so that you don't hurt your eye when you look at it. But right now there are some pretty nice sunspots on the sun. They're working their way around to the edge and we're seeing some flares off the edge of the sun. Mm -hmm. You know, the general public are taking a look and thinking it's great, but of course they don't seem to be, you know, they're not one of these big, huge ones that are going to fly out and fry our satellites. Now, these stars that you're studying do have some differences. They're different than the sun, these stars. That's right. That's and right. in one way, they're a lot smaller. They are a lot smaller. These particular stars that I'm looking at are, um, they're called M-dwarfs. 
And the M just comes from a, um, a spectral type classification that was developed at the beginning of the 20th century when uh, astronomers were taking spectra of all different kinds of stars. And they, well, I, I'm not sure how they, they decided what, you know, they at what some point just had them. a list of, okay, well, this is a spectrum of an A star, B, C, and went, went on down the, the alphabet. And then when astronomers started trying to understand why these spectra looked the way they did, they had to rearrange the letters so that the first kind of stellar spectral type was not an A star, it was actually an O star. And they decided to order the stars from hottest to coolest. And so um, it turns out that the, the order went from A, B, C, blah, 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 to O B A F G K M, which means nothing. <laughs> I know there are at least a few of you all out there uh, listening to us that know a little device that you use to remember these if you ever had had stars in school or college. And I know Rachel knows it too. She's just yes. got to. So tell us what it is. And it dates back to the days when there were not very many women astronomers. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so, uh, so they came up with this um, acronym, a way to remember the, the stellar spectral type sequence was O-B-A, fine guy or girl, right. depending. <laughs> right. Kiss me. <laughs> yep. And, but I have a, a better acronym. Let's do it. <laughs> um, orbiting bodies always follow good Keplerian motion. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And that even makes sense. And it makes sense. <laughs> so O stars are a lot bigger, a lot hotter than... Than the sun. Than the sun, which is a... It's a G star. So it's pretty far down there on the list. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. The surface of the sun uh, has a temperature of about 6,000 degrees. And one of these O stars might have a temperature of 30 or 40,000 degrees. So by comparison, the sun's pretty, pretty cool. And in and comparison to the sun, these M dwarfs, M is all the way at the end of the sequence. And so they, these, are, these are just cool, cool objects. It turns out that these stars are also very small in addition to being very cool. And so we've been discovering in the last um, decade or so that there are just tons and tons of these very dim objects in, in, our, in our neighborhood, in our solar mm -hmm. neighborhood that, that we haven't found out about because there's there's so, you can't see them they're just they're, too dim for a regular optical telescope to see yeah exactly you have to spend a lot of time looking staring at one patch of the sky just to be able to see these things even though they're you know astronomically speaking spitting distance away now the sun they say the sun's four and a half billion years old or whatever and that it's going to nicely go along and shine for another four and a half billion uh, an m star how long does it live before it runs out of nuclear fuel. Well, an M star is much, much longer lived. Uh, because it's so small, the physics of what's going on in its interior means that it just takes a lot longer for it to burn its its hydrogen fuel mm -hmm. than, than it will take the sun to burn through its hydrogen fuel. And so um, some of these M stars can last 10 billion years or longer. Um, so these guys are, are pretty long lived. But yet they flare. Yet they have these interesting processes on them. They're not just a boring little, tiny no. little, dim little, cool <laughs> little star. So what do you think's going on with these M stars to make them flare so you can see them with the Green Bank Telescope? 
Well, so um, for some reason that we don't we don't completely understand, these stars are able to able to produce these flares. We see them, and we infer that they must have really strong magnetic fields on um, covering a large fraction of the the star. So. If you look at the sun on a, any given day, you'll see sunspots, but they'll just be little, tiny, like just little pinpricks of darkness against the bright, the bright disk, sun's disk. These stars, even though they're you know maybe a third the size of the sun, have more than half of their surface covered with spots. Wow! And so just think about the, you know we said that the on the sun, the sunspots are where the magnetic field's poking through the surface. So you've just got all this magnetic field poking through the surface on, on one of these stars. And so, you know, that has, there's a lot more magnetic field that can, that can move around and produce flares. And uh, that's kind of our basic understanding of why flares happen. But of course, we want to explore that in more detail so that we can test our, our theories. So tell us about this particular star that you're looking at. So uh, yeah, so I, this is a this star is called AD Leo, which means it's in the constellation Leo. Good, um, that's my and, favorite. <laughs> and uh, it's it's pretty faint. It's not uh, not one of the bright stars in Leo that you could go out in the night sky and, and point out. Um, mm-hmm. It's a bit it's fainter than your eye can make out. And it's and it's relatively close by. It's it's about sixteen light years away. That is which pretty is close. pretty close. Yes, it is when uh, you consider most of the other objects in our galaxy are hundreds or thousands of light years away. Sixteen light years is uh, is relatively close. So you you can't really see it with the naked eye. It wouldn't be a remarkable star, even if you could, because it's a a little dim dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> How did you? How did you find it in the first place? This particular star and and other there are some other stars like it that uh, that we that we know about are capable of undergoing these intense flares, and um, this ties into why I'm using the the GBT to look at it uh, at radio wavelengths for very brief instances, less than a you know less than a second. This star just becomes immensely bright. I mean, brighter than a these bright radio galaxies that are right next to it, this this puny little star suddenly outshines these these powerful radio galaxies, um, and uh, and so people have have known about this for a while, but they haven't had the tools to be able to study to study these events in the kind of detail that we can now that we have. So it was the just luck the first time somebody saw this object because it happened to be bright. Yeah. Exactly. When they had the telescope pointed in that way. Yeah. So when was it discovered by a radio telescope anyway? Back in the back in the seventies. Okay. Was when they first noticed that these kind of M dwarf stars were undergoing these really weird radio flares. And people study them for you know, they've been studying them since then, but haven't been able to look at them in enough detail in uh, in both time and frequency space to uh, to be able to make sense out of what what was happening and now that we have this wonderful telescope here at the GBT and there's wonderful instrumentation that actually the instruments that I'm that I've been using were developed to look at pulsars dead stars 
But I'm not looking at a dead star. <laughs> I'm looking at a live star. Right. <laughs> a live flaring star. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so there's there's a, a big element of of luck in terms of discovering that these kinds of stars undergo these kind these flares, these spectacular flares. And there's also another element of luck in terms of knowing when one of these is going to happen because. You know, like like I said, when you we can look at the sun and and have some predictive power as to when a flare might happen, but we can't do that on a star that's 16 light years away. That's just a point. Right. And so, so it's a little bit of a fishing expedition that I'm um, you know pointing the telescope towards the star and collecting data and hoping that a flare will happen. And I I'm pretty confident that at least one is going to happen, um, just based on how how often they've happened when we've looked at the star in the past. So is but. it, so this, on the sun, sunspots appear and disappear, and the, the sun also rotates slowly, so the sunspots will, you know, go along with the sun and rotate to the backside and be gone from our view. Do you think that this also, these two effects occur on these M stars? Do, do the stars rotate uh, and do... Do you think that these huge sunspots or star spots or whatever you call them come and go as well? Yeah, that's yeah. entirely possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do know that these these stars rotate, and um, they rotate usually much faster than the sun. So there's you know something. If there's a spot on this star, it's gonna rotate you know out of view much quicker than mm-hmm. a sunspot would rotate out of the field of view right. on, on the sun. Um, and yet, but that's kind of made up for by the fact that there's so many star spots. But we still don't have a good enough understanding of what's happening on these stars to um, to know if it's if it's well, if it's just a you know what what would cause any given star spot to produce such a flare. Right. And when? How often do you see flares on these stars historically? I mean, if if, if you. If you oh. look at them for a couple of days, in any cup, any given two days, are you going to see? Yeah, yeah, you would be, um, you would be, uh, you would be pretty, uh, pretty sure of, of seeing so they something. they a lot. Yeah, and and I should mention that one of the reasons why these, so we know that these stars flare at radio wavelengths, and I've been telling you all about that. But historically, um, these objects were. Uh, seen to undergo flares in the optical, invisible light, just like you were saying, mm-hmm. you can see the sun and hydrogen and see flares. Um, astronomers, you know, decades ago, were looking at these stars and noticed that they had these. They would get bright. These visible brighter. flares. Uh huh. Yeah. Hmm. And so we think there's a connection there between the visible flares and these radio flares, um, but we don't we don't really know. Um, what the exact connection is. And so hopefully by, you know, gathering more data on radio flares and gathering more data on the optical flares, we can learn uh-huh. more about the connection. So why and are you using, why are you using two telescopes? You're using one here in Green Bank, West Virginia, and simultaneously, even though you can't transport yourself down to Puerto <laughs> Rico, you're using a great big telescope down in Puerto Rico too. Yeah, So uh, so I wanted to pick up as much frequency coverage as I could. And um, and the best way to do that was to use two telescopes at the same time. 
And so um, at Arecibo, I'm uh, observing in one frequency band, and then up here I'm observing in an adjacent frequency band. Um, and I'll be able to, to look at the data and s determine, you know, if something happened at, G at the GBT, do we see it at the Arecibo? And that'll give us an important piece of information about the physics of what's going on mm -hmm. behind these flares. And I should mention that um, I also have some colleagues who are using an optical telescope at the same time. That's um, good, yeah. The Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico. Um, so they're trying to see if, if they see any optical flares and can we relate the visible flares to, to these radio flares that the GBT is picking up. Hopefully. Cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hope the GBT picks up? How long will it take you to, to analyze that data and see, see what you've got? Is it a lengthy process? I think it's going to be a lengthy process, yeah. Um, it'll, it's, it's just going to be a, kind of a fishing, a fishing expedition, sort of. I mean, just, just, just trolling through all these gigabytes and gigabytes of data. Yeah. <laughs> Um, to, to look and see if there are any variations that we can attribute to the star right. as opposed to um, radio frequency interference from satellites or whatnot. Because you're looking for a very, sh very short-lived e events in, say, a few hours worth of data. You're looking for real little spikes in the, in the signal strength yeah. from this yeah. from this direction. And so, yeah. Uh, so not only do I need to be able to find those, but I need to be able to find them and then show that they're they're not man-made. Right. So that's going to be those two two bits are going to take up a fair amount of time. And then mm -hmm. once I found them, actually doing something with with that data yeah. uh, will be another. Well, another maybe big the optical people, if they see brightnesses occur, will help you fish, and you know maybe you can yeah. start there yeah. and widen your search. Out. <laughs> Let's see. Well, good luck. It's so cool to talk to somebody that's that's studying stars because we know about stars. We live in a beautiful part of the country here, and we can look up and see stars, you know, so that's something everybody can relate to. Yeah. Even, these, even though yours are too tiny to see <laughs> with the naked eye. So let's hear the, the memory device again, yours, for the going from hottest stars to coolest stars. So it's O-B-A-F-G-K-M. K-M. So okay. orbiting bodies always follow good Keplerian motion. Okay, folks, you remember that, and uh, <laughs> there'll be a quiz next time on Mountain Radio Astronomy. Thanks so much for being with us this morning, and good Thank luck you. to you. Thanks. Come back, tell us. I'll have to the tell end of you the story. what I found. We want to hear the end of the story. <laughs> Thanks again. We're just about out of time for Mountain Radio Astronomy this month. I'd like to uh, remind everybody, though, that we do have a star party coming up in April. April 29th will be the date of our star party if we ever get some clear skies to look at. If you show up at the Science Center just before dark, we'll get you oriented to the night sky and then take you out to the star party patio where we'll have some optical telescopes set up so that you can look at some of the neat things in the night sky with us. In addition, uh, I'd like to tell the audience that we do now offer Mountain Radio Astronomy as a podcast. If you just heard part of this broadcast or part of some of our others and would like to hear it again, or if you just enjoyed it so much, 
that you'd like to hear these broadcasts again, you can go to our website, www.gb.nrao.edu. On the right-hand side of the page, you'll see a link to our podcasts. These are Mountain Radio Astronomy broadcasts, originally recorded for the show that you're listening to, available now on the web. That's about it. We'll see you in May. Thanks for joining us for Mountain Radio Astronomy.